Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today.
Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And today I want to talk um, about the really interesting book that uh, I've, I've picked up uh, in the last couple of weeks, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order by Gary Gersel. And this is looking at neoliberalism, particularly from an American perspective. Um, and it obviously kind of sandwiches the the neoliberal era, the actual neoliberal era, from uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall through to the creation, ironically, of uh, Trump's uh, Mexican Wall. Not that that ever really emerged in any meaningful form, but the uh, the, the metaphor is is very very potent. The, the the tearing down of walls that kept back the free movement of goods and labour. The the kind of the 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 model of globalisation we see in the nineteen nineties, where um, uh, world markets were were thought to inexorably link up in, in ever closer and deeper ways, uh, and uh, the idea that uh, market liberty and personal liberty would go together once you know uh, things like um, the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact countries uh, fell apart that kind of uh, utopian moment um, the the sort of Francis Fukuyama end of history kind of moment that uh, uh, markets and liberal democracies would rule the world uh, comes to a, a kind of a, a screeching halt in 2016 when you have this kind of nativist populist kind of celebrity con artist um, uh, who's able to um, take the, the positions he's able to take because in fact eight years beforehand in 2008 all of the things all of the kind of the, the, the promises of the new Fukuyama world fell apart with the, the world uh, economic crisis and uh, so uh, I suppose our questions now are, you know, when did the neoliberal order end? Was it actually 2008? Um, or did it fall apart when this kind of wave of right-wing populism of Trump and Brexit and Bolsonaro and Modi and all, all, that, all that kind of stuff? And then, therefore, you know, what kind of capitalism are we living in now? Well, um, as, as Yanis Varoufakis put recently, he said, he said, you know, we're in something much worse than capitalism now. We exist in a kind of a, a the development of a new sort of kind of tech feudalism, and uh, well, that's a kind of a different conversation. So, what I'm going to do today is I'm looking at an interesting part of um, the rise and fall of the neoliberal order, and it's the bit that always kind of fascinates me the most is the emergence of I ideas and philosophies. Um, and on how um, fringe ideologies, and for most of the 20th century, from the, the 1930s onwards, when people like uh, Friedrich von Hayek and Ludwig von Mises were talking about um, the, uh, the, the, the idea of essentially creating a, um, a, a world where capital is uh, kind of uninhibited and the, the state... Uh, draws back and allows markets to do their do their thing. Um, these ideas, particularly after the Second World War, exist on the fringe for decades. Nobody is listening to them. The idea that you would voluntarily rip up a post-war welfare state, um, that you that and that things like um, social provision are, as Hayek argued, the road to a kind of tyranny. To most people around the world after the Second World War, this is an absurdity. And 
um, it only it ta- it takes really until the kind of the, the crises of the 1970s for neoliberalism to take root in in kind of popular consciousness. And the neoliberal ascent, writes Gary Gersel, began innocuously enough. And he, here he's referring strictly to America. In 1971, Lewis Powell, then a successful corporate lawyer in Virginia, issued a call to arms in the form of a private memo he had sent to the head of the US Chamber of Commerce, entitled The Attack on the Free Enterprise System. The memo described as tyranny the comprehensive regulatory edifice that the New Deal order had built to manage capital, labour, finance, retirement, poverty and the environment. We in America... Uh, already have moved very far indeed towards some aspects of state socialism, Powell lamented. The experience of the socialist and totalitarian states demonstrates, he continued, that the contraction and denial of economic freedom is followed inevitably by governmental restrictions on other cherished rights. So there is this Hayekian sort of connection there, that the expansion of the state the expansion of state provision and therefore the growth in taxes will inevitably lead to restrictions on personal freedom, um, lead to the, the necessity for some kind of totalitarian state and in the fevered imagines of, imaginations of people like Ayn Rand, will lead to kind of Gestapos and labour camps and all these other things, which of, of course um, the, 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 the connection there is absurd, but the fact that it's articulated and articulated um, so regularly is the interesting point. The extent to which anybody outside the circles of um, the, the, the Montpelierin society, which was the, um, the, the hub of neoliberal thought, seriously thought that um, a growing welfare state would lead to tyranny, um, personal tyranny, is debatable. There were plenty of people who had private wealth who didn't want it to be taxed, who saw, who, who resented taxation and liked to conflate um, taxation and social provision and the redistribution of wealth with some sort of either Stalinism or fascism. But for the most part, um, the neoliberalism seemed to appeal to people in, in different ways. The failure of the natural defenders of economic freedom in America, especially in the business community, to fight back upset Powell most of all. While the new left was capturing the imagination of university students and their professors, and then the nation's media, corporate leaders had remained largely silent and supine. Such complacency, Powell insisted, had to end. Business people and their allies had had to become more outspoken build organisations and campaigns to promote their values, and then vie for political power. Such power, Powell declared, must be assiduously cultivated and, when necessary, used aggressively and with determination, without embarrassment. If businessmen failed in this endeavour, they might lose the fight for capitalism altogether. So here you have somebody talking in explicitly kind of ideological terms, the idea that there is a struggle of ideas, that a war is being waged, and unless something is done within the next few years, um, they, you know, the, the, the system upon which supposedly everything is based might be permanently overturned. Uh, I mean, the extent, again, to which that is realistic is is, is, is 
highly debatable. Um, in uh, David Edgerton's book, The Rise and Fall of the British Nation, he, he makes a really simple point about um, the shift to the right during the 1970s. And he essentially says, a class, a political and business class by the mid-1970s had had enough. And they were, they had decided that everything that had happened since the end of the Second World War had gone too far, uh, and that it, it uh, and that the, the kind of the, the social democratic consensus established in 1945 must be overthrown. Um, and they were highly well motivated, well organised, um, and gradually over time, the, the more transatlantically connected. Um, group of people now the the political right on both sides of the Atlantic now are, are very well connected though obviously ideas tend to flow uh, one way from uh, America to Britain for for the most part in terms of, of kind of influence Gary Gersel writes at first Powell's memo circulated only privately among select members of the business community but Powell could not keep it private once Richard Nixon nominated him in 1971 to the Supreme Court. Soon after, a Washington Post columnist shared the content of Powell's memo with his readers. Liberally-minded Americans were incensed that a jurist who presented himself as a moderate in the Senate confirmation hearings had secretly issued such a radical call to arms. But the public, really, public release uh, of the Powell memo was a gift to the neoliberal movement, for it served as a rallying point for the many business people, intellectuals and would-be policymakers who wanted to restore free enterprise and free markets to the centre of American life. John M. Olin, a one-time chemical magnate who had established the Olin Foundation in 1953, now redoubled the efforts through his foundation to mount ideological defences for free market capitalism. The Powell Memorandum, he wrote, gives reason for a well-organised effort to re-establish the validity and importance of the American free enterprise system. Joseph Coors Jr., part of the team of brothers who owned the Colorado-based Coors Brewing, Brewery Company, was, a, uh, was also inspired by the Powell Memo. Powell memo. In 1973, he, he, along with Paul Weyrich, founder of the, um, founded the Heritage Foundation as a think tank charged with promoting free market principles and policies. Heritage quickly developed ties to the Montpelier in circles through Edward Fulner, a Hayekian acolyte and Montpelier in society member, who would succeed Weyrich as Heritage president in 1977. Heritage established a reputation as the most politically aggressive think tank in the neoliberal firmament. So, if you were listening to this and you knew no better uh, and had no prior knowledge of uh, uh, American uh, e economic and political developments and thought, you might be thinking that by 19, the, the mid-1970s something strange had happened to America and it was some kind of state uh, command economy where um, there are no markets and things are uh, allocated goods and services are allocated by big bureaucratic government departments as you'd find in uh, the Soviet Union of course this isn't the case and the idea that free markets were somehow in retreat by the 1970s is, is an absurdity they, they weren't in the slightest what is true however is that there was a body of conservative thought who had never accepted the verdict of the New Deal. 
the Roosevelt administrations and then Truman after the war and then to some extent Kennedy and then definitely Johnson, all of them over the from uh, 1933 to 1968 had uh, managed to 1932 managed to establish a, a series of kind of almost hegemonic ideas in America the idea that um, where markets fail the state is equipped to step in uh, all the way you know from the emergency banking act uh, all the way to um, Johnson's great society that where there is poverty where there is deprivation where there are housing shortages where there are poor business practices the state can reallocate wealth and the state can regulate and the state can do things like build I mean part of the um, the part of America's infrastructure that Biden is now updating was the stuff built by Johnson in the mid 1960s so that is the the thing that is is contested it is uh, three decades of um, kind of democratic ascendancy or democrat ascendancy in economic thought after the second world war they whilst Truman is a, a very unpopular president and has a, a very uh, troubled presidency the Republican Party find it very difficult to lay lay much of a punch on um, Truman when it comes to economic policy. This is why things like the Red Scare are so important to uh, Republican politics. The reason why is because it's hard to tell hundreds of thousands of returning soldiers that the GI Bill was a mistake. It's hard to tell people who were saved by the New Deal that the Great Depression wasn't all that bad. And it's hard to tell all of America that the massive, massive state intervention of uh, war, um, war production and finance, um, which dwarfed the New Deal, that that was a mistake. Because ultimately, the intervention of the state created the circumstances for America to become the world's wealthiest and most militarily successful power throughout the entirety of the Cold War, despite the fact that the Soviet Union has nuclear weapons. Americans uh, enjoyed standards of living that most Soviet citizens couldn't have imagined. Um, throughout the entirety of the Cold War, um, America, in terms of technology, R&D, and um, the ability to project its power around the world was streaks ahead of the Soviet Union. Why? Because of the influence, because of, of the operation and the deployment of state power, for the most part. It hasn't got anything to do with uh, the, the magic of markets. It has to do with the size and the scope and the role of the state. This is what uh, neoliberals sought to um, undermine. There is a, a fundamental kind of flaw in the in the argument, though, that the, the wealth and power of America, the size of America's armed forces, 
the fact that these that its defence industry was vastly subsidised by uh, the, the the public purse, um, and and a whole host of other kind of uh, um, pub, public provisions of wealth and services gave America the ability to defend its interests and, by extent, defend the workings of markets around the world. Anyway, we, we digress. Another neoliberal and former Montpellierian member, Murray Rothbard, was instrumental in founding the Charles Koch Foundation in 1974, soon to be rechristened the Cato Institute. Charles Koch was one of the four sons of Fred Koch, who built his Kansas-based oil refining business, Coke Industries, into one of the country's largest and wealthiest corporate entities. Fred Koch uh, was also a founding member of the John Birch Society and bequeathed the intensity of his right-wing political commitments to his sons. No think tank would outdo the Cato Institute in terms of its hostility to the New Deal order and its fierceness, uh, the fierceness of its, of its belief in libertarian principles. Yet another think tank, the Manhattan Institute, founded in 1977, began supporting the work of George Gilder, whose celebration of free market capitalism, wealth and poverty, became one of the Bibles of the Reagan administration and the emerging neoliberal order on its publication in 1981. Liberals and leftists were slow to recognise the size and coordinated nature of this counter-offensive, in part because it was taking shape outside the districts in which they lived and worked. These districts included universities and college towns surrounding them, uh, Georgetown saloons, labour unions, institutions such as the Brookings and the Ford and Carnegie Foundations, newspapers such as the New York Times and three television networks, ABC, CBS and NBC, that dominated national broadcast media. They constituted a kind of New Deal order establishment, now pushed to the left by radical student movements. Powell's memo had, in essence, instructed supporters of the free market system to bypass this policy media formation, um, thought to be contaminated by New Deal Keynesianism on the one hand, and New Left Liberation on the other. The call to arms would build what journalist Sidney Blumenthal long ago identified as the counter-establishment. Think tanks that would rival the best universities as, as incubators of new ideas. Newspapers such as the newly free market, uh, um, the um, newly free market fierce Wall Street Journal, that would take on the New York Times. New forms of media such as direct mail techniques pioneered by Richard Vagary, and later talk radio and cable TV to counter the influence of the mainstream media especially the three dominant television stations, seen as reflexively and dangerously liberal, and new forms of corporate political mobilisation, both to influence public policy and to raise money for pro-capitalist candidates. So the, when you look at later on, the, in, in the, the later 70s, the, uh, the development of characters like Roger Isles in the, the, the Nixon and Ford administrations, and his development, his, his, his um, creation in the 1990s of Fox News, it was based solely around the idea that the right needed its own media, uh, and it needed its own media to shape its own kind of reality. Um, a reality that 
in initially preached the the kind of the gospel of the free market and that um free markets were somehow somehow uh, associated not just with liberal democracy but this more deeper american idea of liberty of the freedom of the individual to make their own destiny and all that, that kind of uh, rugged individualism sort of stuff that goes all, all the way back to uh, you know, probably the, kind of the mid-19th century. Um, the Obviously, Fox News metastasized into this uh, kind of far-right conspiracy theory um, uh, sort of network of, 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 of lies and did that long before Trump came along but it it comes back to this moment in the 1970s where there were people on the conservative right who believed that this kind of that they, that they were waging this kind of war of resistance um, to um, not just the the high tax and spend policies of the um, the government um, and but more uh, a, a broadly kind of uh, war for the independence of of, of cap private capital itself and private private wealth itself, but also for the pursuance of of of, of kind of wider, more reactionary sort of ideas, the uh, the sort of ideas that kind of um, were the products of people like William F. Buckley and, and stuff like that. The the idea that democracy itself is a very dangerous thing because democracy will put uh, white people and black people and uh, and uh, other ethnic minorities on, on a level playing field if you're not careful that democracy will erode the power of elites, that democracy will um, essentially uh, lead to socialism if you, if you allow it to kind of perpetuate it's interesting. It was a it was a point that uh, kind of Hitler made in Mein Kampf. He said, you know, you, you get in, democracy inevitably leads to Marxism. I think was his his point. Not to suggest that um, at this stage that the, the kind of the American conservative right was anywhere and anything associated with with fascism at all. It kind of sort of certainly is now. But um, the business roundtable represented one form of corporate mobilization founded in 1972 right it's gary gersel it was meant to encourage the nation's largest and most respected corporations to develop a common political voice and to intervene in policy matters of urgent concern in 1978 the business the business round table played a major role in defeating a labor law designed to strengthen unions in their organizing campaigns the defeat came as a shock to organised labour, which thought it had the advantage of, in Congress. The labour movement had yet to take full measure of the business roundtable or the intensifying anti-labour corporate coalition readying itself for battle. Corporate political action committees con constituted a second new form of business mobilisation. Campaign finance law changes in the 1970s had made it possible for individual corporations to ask their employees to contribute to a company's PAC, a PAC. Um, 
with decisions about which policies and political campaigns to support left in the hands of firm owners and executives. This rule changed dramatically. Um, this rule change dramatically increased the potential for corporate influence, as the ceiling on the size of PAC contributions permitted by law was much higher than the amount of single wealth a single wealthy individual could donate to a candidate. Justin Dart, owner of Dart Industries, a nationwide chain of drugstores based in Southern California, grasped the financial punch that corporate PACs could deliver. He undertook a campaign that propelled almost 750 PACs into existence in less than five years, from 1974 to 78, um, nearly a tenfold increase. For 40 years, Dart had detested FDR and his enduring influence on American politics. Most of Dart's efforts since the 1930s to rid America of the New Deal order, however, had failed. But in Ronald Reagan, he thought he had found a man who might succeed in doing so. Dart raised a large amounts of money for Reagan's two gubernatorial victories in California, earning him a seat at Reagan's kitchen cabinet table. In the 1970s, he redoubled his efforts to get the man into the White House. Uh, Dart's ability to open corporate sluice gates and flood the GOP with PAC money contributed critically to sustaining Reagan during the long march to the White House. So the power of the the kind of the, the, the neoliberal insurrection in the 1970s is, is funded by the super wealthy. Um, mainly because um, they uh, have a, have a interests in deregulation and avoiding taxation, but also because many of them had um, always seen the, uh, always seen the the New Deal and a kind of a degree of social democracy as at odds with what America was and what America should be. And they saw democratization and um, the development in um, the broadening of of rights and um, social and economic rights for um, all aspects of um, American society as a threat to the power of elites. And ultimately, what neoliberalism is it was in, 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 intended by many people to be many things but what it turns out to be is a return of political and economic power that had only been slightly eroded to the hands of uh, elite groups there there is a it's important not to overstate the achievements of social democracy because the um, even uh, by the the mid to late 1960s in America in Great Britain and in another other a number of other countries where there had been um, post-war progressive change the position of uh, economic social political cultural and, and media uh, elite groups is pretty uh, unchanged the the challenges to um, economic and racial hierarchies are for the most part seen off without too many concessions particularly in America um, the, the the gains of the civil rights struggle in some ways shouldn't be shouldn't be overestimated so these weren't 
elites in peril you know there was no question that they were going to suffer any kind of fate that their more unfortunate contemporaries in Russia or China or other places uh, had endured but they resented the idea that they would share political power with trade unions uh, with minority groups with uh, women's political uh, um, uh, groups for um, equality or anything like that this was a counter-revolution as you see from from time to time Um, and it was a stunningly successful one and one which we live in the, the, the still in the aftershocks of there are you know despite the fact that we live in a different political order and the economic realities of neoliberalism have collapsed we still hear the kind of like the the the, the, the garbled kind of uh, noises of, of of this 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 prior era um uh, in uh, particularly in right-wing um american politics now Anyway, so I'm going to stop there, but I just want to let you know um, there's plenty of uh, new stuff happening on the Explaining History website, explaininghistory.org. We've finally got our, our little store going there, so you can check out the links to my various study guides uh, and ebooks. Um, so do give it a look. I'll put some a link in the show notes. Um, and there's new study content, particularly at the moment, all about Russia going up every week. But as the year goes on, we'll be branching out to other topics. So it's all there to help and serve you to, um, if you're studying history or you're just a kind of interested armchair historian, do go and check it out. Anyway, uh, thanks very much for listening and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. All the best. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.